0: Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Live Wire Radio. We're backstage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Coming up for you, we've got Chelsea Kane here, best-selling author, and this man, Peter Segel, host of the wildly popular Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me radio program. Peter, we're talking about getting even this week. I'm wondering, uh, have you ever exacted revenge on
1: an enemy? No, but I've got a lifelong plan to finally put Ira Glass in his place. It dates back to the days when he stole my concept for an award-winning, groundbreaking, journalistic radio show that told stories of import and emotional intimacy and reduced me to going to Plan B, which was a stupid-ass quiz show with fart jokes. And I'm (laughs) a
0: little bitter. And then he will likely do an entire one-hour episode of This American Life about it. I know. That will win the
1: Peabody. Our entire hour, Peter Sagal's Life on Quest to Destroy Me. Act One, The Origins of His Rage. Speaking of uh, shows that will never win a Peabody,
0: we should get out on stage and do some live wire radio. I'm so excited. Did I dress okay? You look great. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's. Live
1: Wire! Yes, it's live wire radio from the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me host Peter Sagel, best-selling
0: thriller writer Chelsea Kane, and music from Clem Snides, Eve Barzillet. All that, plus comedy from our troupe Trouble at the Tanning Salon, and our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley, And now, the host of Livewire.
1: he's got two turntables and a Mr. Microphone, Luke Burbank!
0: Wow. Thank you very much, Portland. Welcome to Livewire. We have a great show in store for you. This hour, this show is all about getting even. We've got best-selling author Chelsea Kane coming out. She's got a new book about a character named Kick who gets even with some real bad people. We've also got a Peter Sagal, host of Wait Wait Don't Tell Me here. When I think about getting even, the thing that comes to my mind is associated with my very favorite slash very worst habit, which is gambling. I love gambling, and I walk... You guys sound like you're also gamblers. I've told the producers of Livewire I have a fail-proof system for doubling all the money that you guys donate each year, and they... So they're considering it, but um, I do. I love, I love gambling, and, and I will often go into a casino or a card room, and in my mind, I'll be thinking, I'm going to make some money tonight, which is pretty crazy because I can see the casino, and they didn't build it from people winning money. <laughs> but I think I am going to be special somehow. And if you're a gambler, you know that there's often a moment when you're there where instead of winning a bunch of money, you've now lost some money, and the uh, the term for it uh, with other gamblers is getting stuck. I got stuck for you know whatever hundreds of dollars, and then you wish you could just get back to even. That's the whole idea. Is like God, if I just had the money that I walked into this place with 25 minutes ago, that would be great. And when gamblers talk to each other, you ask a gambler like, "Hey, how'd it go the other night?" If they say, "Ah, even." You're so happy for them. That's the best possible thing that could happen. Every gambler goes into the casino hoping that they're going to win a lot, and at some point, invariably, they're just really stoked about the idea of getting out of there with their, you know, hide intact. I don't really know where I got this love for gambling from, but I have had it my whole life. When I was a kid and we would go to the state fair, I did not go on the rides. I did not go after the cotton candy. I made a beeline for the carnival game section, which is basically... The children's casino. <laughs> and I would try to take a small amount of money and turn it into big prizes and once I won a... I took one dollar and I, I turned it into a four-foot-tall Spuds McKenzie stuffed dog <laughs> that I took home and placed on my bed. It took up 70% of the bed. I'm pretty sure it was stuffed with Chinese newsprint that had SARS in it, but I loved that thing because... <laughs> I'd won it for basically a dollar. But um, when I talk to people, like people right here in this crowd it would sound, who don't really get gambling, they don't understand why I would voluntarily do something that kind of costs me money and creates these wild emotional swings and often doesn't turn out the way I hope, I will say to those people, why did you have kids? (laughs) Which, you know, really shuts them up pretty quick. And talk about expensive things that create emotional swings for people. That's the real thing, though, right? Gambling, if I lose a hand of Baccarat, it's, oh, that's some money. But life is, the stakes are really high, you know? Like, you put your heart out there for somebody, and then you roll the dice, and then it's snake eyes. That's like, that's serious business, right? We are all living in this casino called life that none of us asked to be in, and we're trying to get through it, and sometimes it's kind of scary. And I don't have any great advice about life, but I do have a lot of experience in real casinos. And I just thought I would equip you guys with some of my blackjack tips here. <laughs> I wrote these down in the hotel today, so I would not forget them. Some of these do have application to our real lives as well. This is a blackjack a tip from uh, uh, Luke Burbank. Always split eights. Okay, this is a, a no-brainer because 16 is a terrible hand. And you're gonna now have to double your bet, so that's scary, but you have a better chance of winning. And the life lesson is sometimes you have to do scary stuff because it increases your chances of success. Um, Tip number two, always hit 16 against an overcard. Now, you're probably gonna bust. This advice is probably gonna cost you your money, but you're also gonna lose if you stay on 16. And sometimes the dealer gives you a five, and you have a 21, and you look like some James Bond badass. (laughs) And the life lesson there is, it's really fun to be a badass in life sometimes. And then, <laughs> so maybe some of you forgot. <laughs> I just reminded you. And then the, the, the tip number three I have uh, from my life uh, in the casinos is, overtip the cocktail waitresses. And this is because there will definitely be a point in the night when they are your only friend. And <laughs> and the life lesson there is, identify the people who are making your life better, or at least tolerable, and shower them with love. So those are our little gambling tips for the show. You can use them. You cannot use them. Our musical guest this week was called the most underrated songwriter in the business today by NPR Music which is one of those compliments that could kind of send a neurotic person into a tailspin. <laughs> Thankfully, Eve Barcelet isn't one of those people, or maybe he is. I don't know. I guess we'll find out in a minute. Uh, he's the lead singer and principal songwriter of the alt-country band Clem Snide and has released some great solo work as well, which we are about to hear. Please welcome Eve Barcellet to Livewire.
2: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: Uh, you were born in uh, Israel and then raised in Teaneck, New Jersey, two cradles of alt-country
3: music. I think it can be agreed. <laughs> yes. But I do uh, I do live in Nashville now, so I'm trying to, you know...
0: How did you uh, first uh, fix on this sound? Because uh, I've been listening to your music a lot this week. I've really been enjoying it, but it doesn't say Teaneck, New Jersey to me. Like, were you were you sort of an oddball there growing up? Uh, or,
3: Well, I... I mean for me personally like my parents came to New Jersey when I was 6 and uh and Israel is already kind of an ephemeral sort of place in a way so I never knew <clears throat> I never knew where I belonged you know um and uh something about like old country music just you know, maybe I just envy the, those, those sorts of roots that I never had myself. That's, that, that sounds good, yeah. right? <laughs> I just figured it out here tonight.
0: Easy, ladies. He's taken. I see a wedding ring. Some of them are fanning themselves because it's really hot in here, some because they're near swooning, Eve. Um, I, I was looking at your, uh, your tour dates, and you've been doing something that I, a lot of uh, my friends and, uh, and musicians I admire is, have been doing, which is you've been playing these very intimate living room shows. Yeah. How's that going?
3: It's, it's going... It's great. I, uh, yeah, I, I'm just... I'm still sort of processing it. Uh, when, when I first heard about the idea uh, a couple years ago, I, I did sort of... Uh, I balked.
0: Now explain uh, for people... What what a living room show actually entails?
3: Yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting process. It's not quite a show, um, and it's not quite a party, and then it's just a couple clicks off of like selling some Amway products. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Like, <laughs> Like just one, just a little hipper than selling Amway. Because um, you'll sell,
0: you'll sell uh, tickets. People will go over to somebody's house. You'll come by. You'll play yeah. some music for big Eve Barzelay and Clem Snide fans. They're stoked. They get to be very close to you. But you also very get close. to be very close to them. Yeah.
3: I don't know. You trade a certain mystique that the stage affords you huh. uh, for a, for a kind of weird intimacy that's that's really sweet. You know. I mean, I go back. I've been back a couple times now to some of these people's houses, and it, it almost feels like <clears throat> some weird high school reunion. You know? We're like, oh, I know you, and then we have this intimacy, but we don't need to talk to each other very often. So, and that's how I kind of like to... Uh, <laughs> I think I prefer to relate to my fellow humans in that way. It seems everybody wins. Well,
0: everybody... what song are we going to hear right now?
3: Well, so, yeah, so I'm also... Not only do I play in in my fans' uh, living rooms and oftentimes sleep in their guest rooms, (laughs) Um, but I write songs for them, too. I I have this thing where, you know, you make a a little offering to the PayPal gods, and you send me an email with just some information about, usually it's for, like, a loved one or, you know, so I made a record, I, I kind of amalgamated a lot of the songs, and then I use the name Mary kind of for most of the songs, so I'll, it became a "Songs of Mary." Mary became a kind of.
0: I'll just imagine you're singing Luke, but <laughs> that's fine. Right, What's that's the, right. the song called?
3: It's called "Goodnight Nobody." It's Eve Parsley on Livewire.
4: beautiful night across the freeway in just my bare feet the black top still warm by the vending machines and all the trees used for naming the streets all the trees used for naming the streets. Like a bird with a nest on its mind, and all the leaves and all the twigs stuck together by spit from your kiss, and a very sweet wine.
0: Eve Bercelay. He will be back out here just a little bit later. You are listening to Livewire from PRI, the show that's had "Invisible Touch" by Genesis going through our heads all week, until we just heard that. We will be right back. This LiveWire podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, now featuring the Jarvis Sit-Stand Desk for when you want to hang low or get high. Now, I know that sounds like a drug reference, but it's actually not because Ergo Depot knows that standing tall means higher energy levels, higher concentration and output. Jarvis has a memory handset that allows you to raise the desk to whatever height you like, and its LED readout always tells you how high you are just like your old friend Phil used to do in college. Okay, now that was a drug reference. I'm, I'm sorry, we, we just really miss Phil around here. Find the Jarvis sit-stand desk and more furniture for a healthy workday at ergodepot.com, where we figuratively have your back. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio. Our next guest tried a lot of things before becoming your favorite public radio host. Who writes these, by the way, because I'm also a public radio host? Um, has to read these. He's been a playwright, an actor-director, a travel writer, even a ghostwriter for a former adult filmmaker. In 1997, he joined the panel of an adorable little news quiz on NPR, and in a matter of months was declared host Please welcome host of the wildly popular Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me program and the author of The Book of Vice, Peter Sagal to Live Wire. <laughs> Peter, are you, um, are you having fun tonight in a way that you don't typically have when you're hosting Wait Wait because there are a lot of uh, things to keep track of and uh, panelists to wrangle and things like that. Tonight, you're
1: just... I'm just ha- hanging out, enjoying the backstage catering, watching you struggle. <laughs> well, feeling I learned feeling, from the best. I understand. It's great. This, no, this, this is a much better gig. Here, why don't you do something that you've worked on all week and then I will come up with something off the top of my head, and they'll like it more. Yes. That
0: is the perfect description I of love what happens with on. Livewire. Yeah. Um, are, you, uh, are you used to the incredible popularity of the juggernaut that is Wait, Wait, or is it still
1: slightly surprising to you? Incredibly popular and in juggernaut? These are not words applied to public radio. <laughs> you guys did shows in San Francisco this summer, and
0: uh, it was like four shows.
1: Yeah, yeah, we did. No, we did three shows in San Francisco and then a bunch of reruns that we taped there, so it sounded like more.
0: And I heard that that sold out in, like, six hours or something. This was a big audience. There's auditorium. nothing to
1: do in San Francisco. <laughs> Seriously, it's a backwater. You've, you go look at the sea lions, maybe you get some chocolate at Fisherman's Wharf. There's nothing. So, of course, they would come see a radio show. Just think of the kind of person who would take an evening out of their lives and come see a radio show... Yeah. Being taped, especially in an unair-conditioned death trap, like we—I mean, those people are not the kind of people you want for your audience. Am I right, everybody? Yeah. Uh, what do you? Uh, you see, it's not fun, right? You prepared this interview. I'm coming here. I'm just zinging things off. They're laughing. It it's really terrible. is. I have it to really say, it really sucks. Doesn't the it? tables now. have
0: really turned? No.
1: I thought I was going to get
0: even with you no. for all the times I haven't won on wait, wait, but no, you're getting no. this even my with me for all the times when I've torpedoed your careful exactly. plan. Exactly. Exactly. When I could see that you're about to say a carefully written little uh, bon mot at the end of something, and then I yell my thing about
1: yeah. Doody. And everybody laughs, and I know that in the edit, no one will ever hear the thing that I wrote. It'll be you, it'll be Luke, and it's like, this is
0: great. Are you getting the amount of enjoyment out of being the host that you thought you would? Because
1: a lot of people are huge fans of yours, and, and it's a, a gig that many people would envy. No, it, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I do, and I apologize for doing this, uh, tend to extend my self-deprecation a little too far. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that I have, in fact, the best job in the world. Uh, it's, it, except for maybe for you, because you get to do what I do, and you have a backing band, and which I'm is am And awesome.
0: I'm able to do hot yoga, too,
1: yeah. during the show, so it's yeah. very efficient. It's, it's a radio show. It's a weight loss program. <laughs> yeah, It's awesome. No, it's wonderful, because, uh, in fact, uh, I get to do shows, uh, every week I get to do a show with wonderful people, such as yourself and uh, your colleagues on our panel, and uh, I also do it for the best people in the world who are public radio fans. Um, I, I, I pity people who are famous on television because who watches television, am I right? <laughs> Just lowlifes who eat inorganic foods purchased from lesser chain grocery stores. That's
0: right, than the ones that sponsor this program. Yeah. Darn it. Yeah. Um, you wrote something on Twitter the other day. You said... Uh, w- one of the great parts of your, uh, your life these days is that you're able to reach out to people who you admire, maybe who you've seen yes. doing whatever they do, and you said, and sometimes they hang out with me. It's pretty awesome. Is that a thing you're able to do because of... Probably because they know you from way way down not yeah, Tell well, Me?
1: Well, no, it's because of my extreme good looks. Uh, in many ways, <laughs> I am the short, middle-aged, Jewish male equivalent of a Beyoncé. Of... <laughs> somebody... Who is so gorgeous. Is that why you keep making us call you Bay backstage? That is exactly why. <laughs> and why I wear those dresses. No, it's because... Uh, you know, it's fun, because, you know, I have this... Uh, and you may find this out now that you're getting into this business, that you will meet really exciting, cool young people. Many of them very attractive, may I say. And they will go, wow, my parents would like to meet you. Yes.
0: Uh, I, um... I know that you, uh, you, you went to Harvard. I did. Did you uh, graduate with uh, a group of people um, who are now running things?
1: And Three of them, three of the members of my class are in President Obama's cabinet, wow. which really pisses me off, because <laughs> I went back to my 25th college reunion a little while ago, and I thought, you know... I'd be the big cheese. I thought, you know, oh yeah, public radio host. That'll be awesome. It's like, oh yeah, Peter Siegel. That's great. Could you (laughs) stand over there behind the secretary of education, the secretary of housing and urban development uh, and the treasurer of the United States? Those are your
0: classmates. Those are
1: my classmates. At that point, I think it gets to you.
0: But so do you think they look at you enviously because they're probably public radio listeners. They're probably smart people.
1: Like, are, does the treasury uh, secretary is, I mean, wish right. they were Peter Sagal? I, this, is, this is what I do. I do an hour of radio a week that makes people's interminable tasks slightly more bearable. That's what I do. People say, oh, I love your show. I help, it helps when I drive my kids to soccer. Oh, I love your show. It's when I do my dishes. Sometimes we do the live shows. People come and bring their dishes <laughs> because they don't want to lose the opportunity to get the dishes washed simply by virtue of going to the show live. That's fine. They come in with tubs. It's okay. Yeah. I, don't li- I don't mind that. I mind when people bring the crosswords because it's like, you know, harder multitasking. So when I meet a relatively well-known person, they don't say to me, oh, I love your show. It provides wisdom and knowledge and gives me a focus of the week where I, I can really sort of center my life's view upon the work that you do. They say, oh... I love your show. Thanks to you, I grouted my bathroom. I would have quit 53 minutes
0: in, but I wanted to hear Paula's prediction. Exactly,
1: you know, and I'm like, that's great. You know, Brad Pitt's bathroom got grouted. Thanks to me. I made that up. I've never met Brad Pitt. But I only hope that he would listen to me while he grouts his bathroom.
0: Do you get nervous ever when you have those... I mean, because you've had very... The president um, no, we, has been we've on. Had,
1: we've had... A, yeah, we had the president Obama when he was a senator and P- President Clinton after he was president.
0: And you've had, I mean, a long
1: list of very, very uh, famous people. Do you get nervous about those conversations? Um, I used to. Uh, and then I decided to hell with them, let them be nervous. Everybody is terrified about whether they will be funny or not. Everybody wants to be funny and are terrified they won't be, and sometimes that plays out poorly, mm-hmm. but a lot of times they're eager for our help to be funny. They want to sort of let, let us help them, so they're very, they, they tend to be a little more nervous than we are, plus we make them take this silly quiz. People don't like quizzes. In fact, I have, I learned this the hard way. I call up all of our guests, all of them, uh, prior to the show, and I explain to them that they're going to take a quiz, and it just doesn't matter. <laughs> I say you are an accomplished person; your your Oscars, your awards, will not be taken away from you if you lose this quiz. <laughs> we had a. I, I use this example: we have a Supreme Court justice, a sitting Supreme Court justice, Stephen Breyer, came on our show, took the quiz, three questions wrong, still on the Supreme Court. Yes.
0: <laughs> I was. I think I was on the panel for that show, and I think I, had, I called him Your Excellency. You did, actually. It was very funny. <laughs> I heard later that he kind of regretted that, by the way. So, uh, uh, Peter, okay, you have uh, made very many famous people answer very many questions about jobs, uh, which are not actually theirs in the game Not My Job, of course, on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And we thought we would take it easy on you here on Livewire by asking you to play our game, which we're calling... Yeah, that was kind of my job. We're going to ask you three questions that are related to actual jobs you have had. For every correct answer, you are going to get a point. And for every wrong answer, our own Andrew Harris, who's standing right over there, who has a smartphone in his hands, he is going to start an Internet rumor about you on Twitter.
1: Oh, how awesome. (laughs) I have some suggestions.
0: Stakes are pretty high. Yeah. Andrew, are you, are you ready for this? Yeah, it's gonna to be totes scandalous. Okay. So can you, uh, let's start with, uh, what, what rumor is uh, Peter playing to try to keep to off bad. of the internet here on question number one? If he gets the question wrong, I will tweet uh, Peter Sagal dated Cher for three months in 1989 and she broke it off due to his lactose intolerance. <laughs> that would be awesome. Andrew, Go do, for we, it. do we have any other rumors yeah. that he doesn't uh, like? Another one, Peter Sagal refers to his own head as the pleasure dome.
1: <laughs> All right, that's the one. That's, right. what, that's what you're playing for. Right. Question number one. Okay, Peter. These are. I'm not averse to any of this. I'm in public radio. This can only help. <laughs> Question number one. You spent a summer as a
0: motorcycle journalist with Cycle Magazine. This is true. This is, you were in college. Uh, yes. You are aware of this, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, which of these... ...is a real thing that somebody did on a motorcycle. Okay. Uh, Steve Lazaro went over Niagara Falls on a motorcycle attached to two floating barrels. He broke both legs and a couple of ribs, but otherwise survived. Okay. Uh, Motorcycle stuntman Dennis Pinto set himself on fire and drove full speed into the side of a van, landing still smoldering on a pile of cardboard boxes on the other side. Okay. Or daredevil Evil Knievel played an entire exhibition hockey
1: game... On his patriotic motorcycle. Right. One of those things really happened. One of those things is true. So the bar- guy with the barrels, guy who went through a van, mm-hmm. or evil Knievel. Are you old enough to remember Evil Knievel trying to jump the Snake River? Yes, in that jet, yeah. modified jet pack yeah. thing. I, I, that was the most disappointing thing that's ever happened.
0: I, I think Geraldo Rivera opening Al Capone's <laughs> vault was my childhood disappointment. Topper, really? And then that Evil Knievel Snake River attempt was right below it.
1: I know. I'm a, maybe I'm a little older, because when, they, when the vault happened, we, I was like, yeah, you should have been there when Evil Knievel tried to jump the Snake River. <laughs> Now you know how I feel, youngster. Anyway, okay, I, I'm going to dismiss that because I don't think Evil Can Evil ever played a hockey game. And I think the first one, a motorcycle and a barrel. I think somebody went over, the, went over Niagara Falls in a barrel, but not on a motorcycle. So I will pick number two, the guy who went through the van and landed on the cardboard.
0: And you are absolutely right, Peter Segel.
1: Yes. So, reputation protected. Yes. For now. That bums me out. Could you tweet that anyway? <laughs> You're really not playing the game the no, way we no, thought no, you no, would, no. but that's I all right. Know, okay. Uh,
0: question number two for Peter Sagel here on Livewire. Upon again. his
1: head did Peter Sagel a stately pleasure dome decree. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Harvard English major, pal. Let's go. Um, yeah, but you're no secretary of the treasury. Yeah, well. Um,
2: <laughs> question number true, two for true. Peter Sagel.
0: And this is, a re- this is also a real thing. Our listeners will probably be fascinated to hear, in one moment, a- Andrew Harris, uh, rumor that we will be spreading about Peter Segel on the internet if he gets this wrong. Peter Segal drives a wood-paneled PT Cruiser with a waterbed in the back. Yes!
1: <laughs> How else do I transport the pleasure dome? <laughs> All right, you were an extra in the video. Cher loved that car. <laughs> she broke up with you when it got repoed. I right? know. Okay. I said, come to my PT Cruiser, enjoy some cheese, and then I got sick, and she broke it off. <laughs> okay, here we go. We're, yes. we're, we're running short
0: on time. Question number two. Uh, Peter Sagel, you were, in fact, an extra in the video for Michael Jackson's Remember the Time. Mm-hmm. Uh, here is a question about that. Which one of these is true about Michael Jackson music videos? Dancers in the Thriller video worked such long hours that many claimed to have nightmares about zombies for months afterwards. For the 1995 video, Who Is It? Jackson and director David Fincher auditioned 15 high-end escorts but didn't hire any of them because they couldn't act well enough. Uh, Or for Beat It, Jackson hired 80 members of rival L.A. street gangs, the Crips and the Bloods, to be extras in hopes of fostering peace through the power
1: of dance. One of those is a real thing. Really? Yep. Uh, First one was like the the guys who worked so long they actually had nightmares about zombies. That's the thriller. Uh, second one was he and David Fincher, who did direct music videos, I know that, back in the day. Uh, and the last one, of course, uh, actual members of the Crips and the Bloods, so they could be healed through the power of dance. Uh, I want, I want David, the David Fincher one to be right, so I'm going to choose that.
0: Oh! oh. He, in fact, hired 80 members of the Crips and Bloods... Did he ...in really? the hopes of fostering peace through the power of dance. How did that work out? Not great. Oh. Okay, uh, last question. Uh, this, is, um, this is for all the marbles I don't even know what you're playing for Or how that would work But this is the last question Peter, you co-wrote the movie Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights Sort of You were part of the writing I was part of the writing Of Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights I got second story credit Which of these is true about the 2004 film That you got second story credit on? In order to look like pre-revolution Cuba, producers bought underground parking for all the tourists' fancy cars in the part of Puerto Rico where they filmed it. Puerto Rican dances differ from Cuban forms of salsa so significantly that no local dancers were hired in any of the filming. Uh, Or uh, three, the film very closely follows your original script. Which of these (laughs) is true?
1: (laughs) Um, If it was uh, was number three that had followed my script, there would have been... A lot more about Cher because I wrote the movie as my love letter to her after our failed relationship, um, which fell apart in Havana. It did. I was told. No, the movie wa- the movie was shot in Puerto Rico. I know that I was not invited to the set. I don't know why. So either the underground garage or the dancers. Uh, I'm gonna guess there's not a lot of underground parking in Puerto Rico, so I'm gonna guess it was two the dancers.
0: You are absolutely wrong. Oh, they parked all of the tourist fancy cars underground in Puerto Rico so that they could. Film it and make it look like pre revolution Cuba.
1: I feel, I just want to say this, I feel terrible. See? This why has changed think, my life. Why do you think those Supreme Court I'm, justices are so I'm nervous? I'm never going to make somebody else take a quiz again. There it is, folks, Ruining Public Radio.
0: There you go. Since 2004, right here on Livewire. Peter Sagel from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, thank you so much. Thank you.
5: welcome, everyone. Just a reminder, uh, this is group talk therapy for people who have trouble with compulsive avenging to the point where it's making their lives unmanageable. Uh, please introduce yourselves and tell us about your most disordered revenge behavior. Uh, Brian Mills, why don't you start?
2: Alright, well, um, my daughter was on vacation in France, and, uh, men broke into her hotel room and she was taken. <laughs> I swore revenge, and, uh, You see, I have a very particular set of skills. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, 130 bodies later, my daughter was safe.
5: Oh, okay. Uh, You, Beatrix. Sure. I'm Beatrix. I went on a blood-soaked spree to kill my ex-boyfriend, Bill, because he shot me in the head and left me for dead. I killed 88 assassins in one night. Personal best. Hello,
4: uh, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. (laughs) So, I swore revenge for the death of my father, but coincidentally, a totally separate revenge was conceived against me. Then both revenges met simultaneously, and there were casualties everywhere, including pretty much everyone I've ever known and didn't know.
5: Oh, okay. That's great, Hamlet. Now, everyone, how was our week? Anyone have revenge feelings this week? Uh, Yeah, I do. Um, Mm
2: -hmm. Tuesday, I was cut off on the freeway by another motorist. No wave. So I followed him. I overpowered him, and I burned his car with gasoline.
5: Okay. All right. Anything else, Brian?
2: There's a chance I hobbled him.
5: Okay. Well, you know what? How about just honking the old horn? Just toot, toot. <laughs> you know, people respond to that, and it's not actionable. You know, this might be a good time to go over some what ifs. Okay. No, what do you mean? Uh, about all right. What if, all right. What? what? do you do if you're at a drive-through and they get your order wrong? Um, cut their Achilles tendons with a boot razor and bleed them slowly until they're dead? No! No, 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 not that, no. You go back and you tell them to give you the correct order and they will fix it. No muss, no fuss, no bloodletting. Okay, next. A group of children has been stealing cherries from your cherry tree. Oh, no, no, I know this one, yeah.
4: Uh, You devise a complex plot involving a traveling group of actors... That will conclude with you fighting the children to death with swords.
2: No, 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 no. You kill the parents in front of the children as they watch.
5: No! (laughs) Neither of those, actually. You you just, you go to the parents and they'll handle it. Nobody dies. Well, can the actors still be engaged? No, no actors, no plots. Seems like you're going to want a traveling group of actors. That will never come up.
4: You'd be surprised how often it actually does.
5: Uh, I have a question. What happens when someone doesn't call you back after, like, three really good dates? Uh, Well, uh, what do you think happens? You tie them to a chair and carve Latin curses into their chest while singing Beyoncé's All the Single Ladies in the style of Tom Waits. Uh, no. All right, in the style of... No! Beatrix, what should you do? I should call them and ask what's going on? Yes, yes, good. Tell me you didn't do the chair thing. Okay, I didn't do it. (laughs) I totally did it. (laughs) Alrighty, I'm gonna go grab a cup of coffee. Nobody do anything while I'm gone.
2: Hamlet, did you take the last donut?
4: Yeah, why, did you want it?
5: (sighs) Brian, no! It's
4: too late.
0: That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, and Courtney Hameister. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, working with their seafood buyers, suppliers, and the industry as a whole towards healthier oceans. Because the ocean can't just show up at the gym, that would be awkward. And the treadmills are moist enough as it is, not unlike our Livewire audience. More information can be found about Whole Foods' seafood rating program at eataspromised.com. New York Times bestselling author Chelsea Kane is no stranger to violence, at least the imaginary kind. Writing a six-part, heart-sick series of serial killer novels, she had to find some pretty original ways to kill people, including a poisonous octopus that was used as a weapon. Now she's launched a new series, One Kick, which follows Kick Lanigan, a woman who was abducted as a child but in lieu of therapy to get over it, takes up martial arts and discovers that it feels really good to hit something. Here to tell us more about Kick, please welcome Chelsea Kane to Livewire. I want to uh, talk about this character, Kick Lanigan, mm-hmm. uh, that you have created for for this new book of yours, One Kick. Where did the idea for Kick Lanigan come from?
6: I, she owes, a, a, like, a real debt to um, Elizabeth Smart and J.C. Dugard and the kind of uh, infamous abductee victims Yeah, we should remind people that
0: those were both women who were abducted for, certainly, uh, J.C. Dugard for a really long time, yeah. years and years. They were,
6: they were girls who were abducted and thought dead and then found and, you know, therefore were sort of resurrected and were very powerful stories, like, because we all knew their faces and to have them come back, I think we all claimed them as sisters and daughters um, and I, I kind of imagined um, El- Elizabeth Smart, who is so composed and amazingly together.
0: And she was the girl in Utah uh, yeah. who was abducted by uh, somebody who had broken into her family's home, and then was found sometime later with his sort of group of people, right? Yeah.
6: So she was abducted for nine months, and and then uh, and then rescued. And I. I imagined her um, kind of at the end of the day, now like taking off her, like she's always in this cardigan and pearls and coiffed hair and she gives these wonderful speeches and she does, like she's married and I imagined her maybe taking off the cardigan and the pearls and putting on like a black leather cat suit and like picking up a utility belt with ninja stars and going out after bad guys. And that was the beginning of Kick Lanigan.
0: Where do you get a name like Kick Lanigan?
6: Uh, Kick, actually, I read a, a book about the Kennedys when I was in middle school, like one of those like paperbacks, like Dynasty of the Kennedy books, and I, uh, there was the, JFK had an older sister named Kathleen Kennedy who mm-hmm. died in a plane crash over England um, after the war, after World War Two, and she was a really kind of cool girl who was very independent, and uh, they called her Kick in the tradition of rich families where they have like n- nicknames for each other because
0: everybody is the seventh person with that name in the lineage. I suppose so, right. I didn't
6: even really thought that through. they have, really to have some kind through. of a little
1: cute I, name. I
6: tried so hard to get people to, like, call me a nickname when I was in middle school. Like, you know, like, I really tried to get that to catch on. Like, yeah. I, you know, please, like, call me Cookie. You know, like, <laughs> everybody. And uh, people were like, no. And Yeah, you just don't get never, to pick your nickname. It's really hard. I
0: really, I hated the name Luke uh, growing up, and I wanted to go by my middle name, which is Christian. But around the time when I decided to do this, I'd also gotten on a baseball team where we had jackets with our name. So I was like, as soon as I grow out of this North Central Little League jacket, which said Luke, I'm going to Christian Christian or maybe Cobra.
6: Cobra. um... Really? Like, you actually, like, paused between Christian and Cobra. Like, that was a... Because I feel like Cobra was really awesome. And then
0: I didn't grow out of the jacket for, like, four years, and then I was over that idea by the time. Okay, so uh, tell us a little bit about... (laughs) we could talk about my spot, talk about my little league all night yeah. but um so okay so so kick lanigan is uh, is she's abducted and what then sort of unfolds for her how is this maybe a little different than some of the stories that we see in the media where i don't understand them to be trained in the martial arts and such uh,
6: well the book the book is about kick lanigan who is 21 and her backstory is that she was abducted when she was 6 and she was rescued 5 years later so um, that is a long period of time when you're a kid, right? That is a childhood. And she, in order to sort of feel safe in the world, um, uh, develops all of these skills from... kind of encapsulate escape artistry and self-defense from, like, lockpicking to escaping the trunk of a car to gutting someone with a hunting knife. You know, you're kind of basic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're basic There's a badge for that. Yeah, like, some people knit, some people... Like, learn how to gut other people with a knife. Um, and it was really important to me that she feel like ca- capable. Um, I, in my other books, um, write about a detective who, uh, in, in his twisted kind of love story with a uh, serial killer, Gretchen Lowell, and those books will continue, you know, after they alternate between the two, um, But Gretchen Lowell is this very charismatic figure. And I was amazed when those books came out at how they became the Gretchen Lowell series. And everyone wanted to talk about Gretchen Lowell. And women would come up to me after events and say, I find Gretchen Lowell so inspiring. And I would say, like, you know, she's a serial killer. (laughs) Um, But thank you, and please (laughs) buy the book. But, I, I mean, I think that that was because we are fed these archetypes especially young women of, uh, in pop culture of no matter how successful you are, um, y- y- like women are sort of riddled with neuroses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see women who are like very like productive in their jobs on television, right? They've had these high powered jobs, but they're still really worried about boys and like that's clearly resonates. But there is also obviously a hunger to just see a woman who um, loves what she does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is really good at it and doesn't apologize. And... Uh, Gretchen Lowell just happens to be really good at eviscerating people in really creative ways.
0: Um, We're talking to Chelsea Kane, who I'm just going to slide back from a little bit on stage. Mm -hmm. Got the table really close behind me, feeling a little nervous here. Uh, We're talking to Chelsea Kane.
6: You know, with a knife fight, you want to be, like proximity, you want to be close because the further away, the more, like, thrust I get, the more inertia I get with a knife.
0: Yeah. (laughs) What's, um, what is the security situation on this show? Do we still have the plane clothes? We have a lot of air marshals in the audience, Chelsea. I just want to feel like I should clarify that with you. Um, when you're writing a scene, whether it's for your latest book, One Kick, or any of your other books where really gory stuff had to go on and you had to just think about this, what, what were you like the rest of the day after you'd just gone into the zone of like, the worst imaginable stuff?
6: relieved. I mean, it's that thing Like, it's it's leading up to that point like I get to be in traffic and I get to be cut off and I get to just fume and then I get to go home and kill someone (laughs) and not a lot of people can say that Uh, and I do, I mean, I really do think that it is very cathartic and I do find that the more stressed out I am Hmm. the gorier (laughs) I'll get and the more uh, I will enjoy just, you know, like really unpacking um the physical violence of a scene uh and like thriller writers are some of like the happiest people seriously they're some of the happiest people that you'll ever meet because of that we get it all out on the page
0: um okay you you write these characters and in particular you write kick who's who's extra great at this stuff honest self-assessment chelsea kane how good would you be in a pinch with all the stuff you've learned do you think you could put it into action
6: yeah, I mean, I think I could write about it really good. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like... Hold on a minute.
0: I'm <laughs> yeah. writing about yeah. a different person doing it. I'm going
6: instructions this. for someone who can actually yeah. do this with their hands. <laughs> um, I know a lot because I spend a lot of time in the dark corners of the Internet. I and mean, then I find this amazing information, like about uh, uh, if you're locked in the trunk of a car.
0: That's how half of these people got here.
6: Yeah. <laughs> it if was it... a
0: car being towed by a recumbent bicycle, but regardless... It... <laughs> It a kind of a car. If
6: you're locked in the trunk of a car, if it is, an, if, if it is a car that has been made uh, in America after 2002, there is an emergency release lever in the trunk. I don't know. And it glows in the dark. Like, you have no excuse like, not to see this and like, pull it and like, let yourself out. That's very good information. I find that kind of thing, and I think, you know, I'm going to put that in a book, which I did. It's in One Cake, along with many other pieces of information that could save your life. I mean, I hope it doesn't come in handy, but uh, like statistically, someone in this audience is going to end up in the back of a, you know, Mercury. And the, the point is, like, when you get into a car, when you when you get into a car with a stranger, it's easy. You just ask, "What's what's the year and model of the car?" Yeah. And then you know.
0: Yeah, easy, easy to remember yeah. life tips from Chelsea yeah. Kane, Simple author of One Kick. Thank you so much. That was Chelsea Kane. Her latest book is One Kick, and you're listening to Livewire Radio right now from PRI out of Portland, Oregon, home of the world's largest amount of neck tattoos outside of Rikers Island Prison. <laughs> Very proud of that here. One more time, please welcome to the stage, Eve Barcelet.
2: All
3: right. Thanks so much.
4: got to feel and deeper than the deep blue sea is that's how it goes that's how it goes if it's real if it's real When somebody needs you, it's no good unless he needs you all the way through the good old
0: That is Eve Barcelet on LiveWire, and that is our show. Thank you so much. Our thanks to our guests, Peter Segel, Chelsea Kane, and Eve Barsolet. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Laughing Planet Cafe. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is a co-creator and executive producer of Livewire. Courtney Hommeister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band along with Jonathan Newsom, Paul Brainerd, and musical director Ralph Huntley. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team along with Alex Falcone, guest writer Caitlin Kunkel, and me. Performers are Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House Sound by Neil Blake. Our stage manager is Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the Oregon Community Foundation, the Oregon Arts Commission, with support from the National Endowment for the Arts, and Meyer Memorial Trust and listeners like you fine people. For more information about the show or becoming a member of LiveWire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week.
2: PRI, Public Radio International.